You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the RSA. My name is Rowan Conway. I'm Director of Innovation and Development here, and I'm delighted to welcome you to today's special lunchtime event. Today, um, we're trying to um, boil the ocean somewhat with our, with our topics. We're here to discuss populism and, and the political moment that we find ourselves in today, where nations are faced with global instability and economic uncertainty, and it's tempting to react by closing borders, hoarding wealth and solidifying power, and for citizens to look upon one another with suspicion, incomprehension and mistrust. But this insularity, together with increased inequality of income and wealth, threatens the future role of the West as a font of stability, prosperity and security. So our panel are here today to discuss populism as this dominant political force and its impacts on the fate of the West. I will introduce them swiftly so we can get on to this, which will be a lively debate. Um, We're going to start with Bill Emmett, the former editor-in-chief of The Economist, who has literally written the book on the fate of the West, and there will be copies outside later. Um, And he will be followed by Edward Luce, who is the um, US correspondent for The Financial Time, who has also written a book on um, populism and the retreat of Western liberalism. And Joris La Yendijk, I got that right, didn't I? Yeah, you Yes, good, good. Um, Is an investigative journalist for The Guardian. All three are separately publishing books on this in the same way to tackle this rise of populism and the waning of liberal values in the West. So we couldn't have a better union of minds and we've asked them to be quite um, combative and come up with different things and to, to fight each other as well as come to some kind of consensus at the end and and reach out to your questions. But without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Bill. Well, thank you very much, Rowan. Thank you all for uh, coming here today. Um, It is tempting, and Rowan asked me to particularly focus on Europe, it is tempting for an author of a book called The Fate of the West to say that the fate of the West is in the hands of French voters, that uh, on Sunday French voters will determine the fate of the West. This is tempting but misleading, The sort of nature of uh, moment that we are in is such that I think if we did have a President Le Pen on Sunday, this would be highly likely to begin a spiral of at least deterioration, but probably destruction of many elements of what we think of as the West, of uh, liberalism and the liberal order, certainly at an international level, the arrangements, the relationships the free trade arrangements, the rules of law in international affairs that have uh, have, uh, have run things. And therefore, we would say, my God, we are at a turning point. The European Union um, could be uh, leading, moving towards disaster. However, the likelihood, as it, at least as the polls suggest, and after yesterday's TV debate, uh, they seem uh, confirmed at least um, in the immediate post-debate polls, that Emmanuel Macron will win um, on Sunday. But that, I'm afraid, although I am an optimist, does not mean that the fate of the West is secure. Because seeing election victories or defeats as being um, uh, part of a kind of tournament, um, uh, a sort of league championship of liberalism versus uh, populism stroke nationalism, is, I think, the wrong way to look at it. If President Macron is elected on Sunday, and then if he is able to form a working majority in the parliamentary elections in France uh, in June, uh, basically, 
the task will be his to prove that a liberal democracy like France is able to deal with the genuine grievances and uh, disillusionment that uh, 40% of French voters or so will have shown by voting for Marine Le Pen. In other words, in France, in the Netherlands, in Italy, which is going to be the next big test of the fate of Europe, at least, there are genuine grievances that explain why we are in the state we are. And those grievances essentially go back, in my view, to the 2008 financial crisis, the worst crisis for 80 years, a crisis which uh, many people were, as it were, asleep at the wheel in the run-up to it, that reflected, to some degree, a distortion of public policy by overweening power of the financial sector uh, and of distortion of campaign finance uh, through campaign finance of some of the workings of democracy, both in America and in Europe, uh, and that in the 10 years, almost 10 years since the financial crisis, has not been successfully addressed. The slow recovery since then, if there has been a recovery, the continued decline in real incomes in many countries are genuine reasons for discontent and disillusionment with, if you like, the establishment, with old remedies. If we look at Italy, where the five-star movement of the comedian Beppe Grillo, uh, which in 2013's election had the, the most successful electoral debut of any party in Western European democratic history, reaching 26% of the vote, is now above 30% and is essentially a party of uh, rejection of the current establishment, uh, a party of rejection of an establishment including uh, Italy's youngest ever prime minister, Matteo Renzi, who came there in 2014, but who have failed to deliver hope and opportunity for uh, a new, the younger generation and who are now considered to be still irredeemably corrupt and criminal. Uh, whether the Five Star Movement can obtain a, a working majority or a, get into government at the election that Italy will have to hold bet, between now and uh, April of next year um, remains to be seen, but if they did, then it could be as big a threat to the future of Europe as um, a Le Pen victory on Sunday. So you'll understand why I say the fate of the West will not be resolved by one election. What needs to happen is delivery of better living standards and a better hope. How do I sum up that delivery in order to finish my five minutes is to say I think that the formula of the West uh, that has been neglected or fallen into too much disuse has been a combination of openness, the openness that is, as it were, now encapsulated by the word globalization, but is really not globalization, but rather all-round openness, and equality. Equality meaning a participation of citizens as equal, uh, uh, people with equal political rights and equal voice and an equal sense of sharing in the fruits of uh, national uh, prosperity. And I think that we maintained openness probably went too far on capital flows um, and uh, speculative finance, and then, but at the same time, neglected equality. Uh, and that is what we've got to deliver better on. I'll stop there. Thank you.
Edward. Thank you. I enjoyed that, Bill. I really don't want to disagree with you, not, not least because you um, were very kind um, to, when you were editor of The Economist to offer me a job and that showed great, <laughs> great wisdom um, and great judgment on your part. Twice. Twice. <laughs> and both times I lapsed and, and, and didn't make the right choice. But, the um, um, but uh, I don't want to disagree with you because generally I agree with you. But let, let me just pick, pick you up on, on one point. You attribute most of this to the 2008 crisis. Um, I think it goes much deeper and goes back much further than that. Um, I moved to the States for the second time in 2006, and that was towards the end of a business cycle, 2002-2007 business cycle, that was the first on record um, in American history, well, since the Depression, where the, the median income, the middle-class income, was lower at the end of it than at the beginning. And we are still, even now, after eight years of recovery following the financial crisis, at a lower median household income than we were in 2000. So I think these have deeper roots than that. Um, one in six American men are out of the workforce. One in six prime-age males in America are out of the workforce. Um, there is a crisis of, not just of economics, but of morale, of status, of dignity that's got a particular male flavour in the United States. And I think the, the quality of the populism of Trump's politics has, a, a, most people I'm sure would agree, a particularly male dimension to it. Um, there are 77,000 steel workers in the United States, and the debate in the last elections, all about steel workers getting those jobs back, coal workers, there are about 80,000 coal miners left in the US, all of whom are pretty much all of whom are male. Um, on the other hand, there are 810,000 people employed as home health aides, get paid much less, don't get pensions, don't get health benefits, don't have job security, they tend to be female. No, no focus on their plight, on the fact that this is a growing sector. This is where jobs are going to come from. They're not going to come from the mines. They're not going to come from steel. They're going to come from basically servicing the wealthy and servicing the old. Those, those service sector jobs are the jobs of the future. They're female jobs. They're not getting the attention they deserve. This year alone in the American economy, 100,000 Retail workers have lost their jobs. We don't hear much about that. Again, lots of them female. Um, so the roots of Trumpism um, and the roots of populism in Europe go back, I think, to, in some respects, go back a generation. Um, the fact that we're seeing this collapse in morale, a declining um, life expectancy, again, for the first time since the Second World War, amongst white middle-aged males and females, um, gives this a Russian flavour. Russia in the 1990s, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, led to a collapse in morale, a collapse of people's sense of security of where they were in the world. Um, and I think Trump is a symptom of this. Trump comes after 10, 20, 30 years of this being baked into people's lives. Um, the question is, will Trump address it. Um, the title of this is The Roots of Populism. Can we put, put it up by its roots? Um, now, the interesting thing about Trump is that 
uh, he is pursuing so far a classic neoliberal Republican agenda. Um, he wants to cut taxes. Um, he wants to gut the Wall Street reforms that Obama put in place after the 08 crisis. He uh, has pivoted away from the protectionist rhetoric of the election. Um, and he said nothing about the infrastructure promises he made on the campaign trail. So we're getting um, essentially an agenda if he's competent enough to push it through. Um, and I don't think he is, frankly, but if, if he's competent enough to push this through, then we're getting an agenda that, are actually, that is actually going to accentuate all the conditions that led to his election. It's going to accentuate that sense of alienation, um, that sense of rootlessness, um, and that sense of racial scapegoating that he exploited so well to get elected. Um, on the other hand, whilst we know, I think, already and can be pretty sure that he's bad at governing, he's just not got the mindset, he's not got the patience, he's not got the interest um, to build the kinds of coalitions you need to build in America to get things done, we do know that he's good at campaigning. And he will keep campaigning whilst he isn't governing. Um, and unfortunately, that might be enough to do the trick, to keep him, to keep him at a sufficiently high poll rating um, to have a credible shot at getting re-elected. And what do I mean by that? I won't go on too long. I mean by that something in America that is called negative partisanship. Namely, you support your party not because you believe uh, in anything it stands for, but because you hate the other party so much. And Trump understands this very, very well, that he doesn't need to deliver these bridges, these airports, these um, middle-class jobs. He doesn't need to put the welders back to work. What he needs to do is humiliate, mock, um, and tweet against the, the liberal elites, um, and they will react on cue every time. He just needs to compliment Kim Jong-un or invite what Rodrigo Duterte from the Philippines to visit, and the elites will lather, they'll foam at the mouth, and Trump's ratings with, with his base will, um, will, will, will go up. Um, so I fear that the roots of populism, 2016 is not some blip year. A lot of people present it as such. And 2017 is not going to be some corrective to the blip year. Gert Wilders might have lost, Le Pen might lose, but the conditions that gave rise um, to these people and to Trump are going to pertain, they're going to persist, um, and they're not going to go away unless some of the policies that you very wisely suggested are put in place. But the circumstances where politics is going to put those in place uh, are really hard to imagine at this point. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm by training an anthropologist, and so when I pitched the idea for a book about populism to my publisher about why people would vote for populist parties, he asked me a very painful question. He's like, how do you know? I mean, are you going to speculate on the motives of populist voters or are you actually going to talk to them? So um, that's what I did, and I thought I'd go back to my own country, the Netherlands, for this um, because I just know the country better. And so I've been talking to Geert Wilders voters, uh, as many as I could. I've been reading up on background uh, I was really struck by the debate yesterday uh, between Macron and Le Pen is that it, Le, uh, Le Pen echoes all the 
issues um, and points made by Geert Wilders. Um, and so what I found is, I think, quite... Well, I don't know if it's different, but it is, uh, it's at least a, a different nuance. I found what, what unites all these voters is a sense of loss of legitimacy. And so there is, um, I think there's a social contract traditionally between leaders and the people, so to speak, is that you will protect us in exchange for which we will accept your privileges. And uh, what was striking is that, that together with the word populism, another word has come up, with, which is elite. And I think an elite that is seen as legitimate will not be called an elite. And so I, I tried to dig into that loss of legitimacy. And what I found was two things which happily alliterate in English, sadly not in Dutch, a fear and fairness. And so I think fairness is, is in, in Bill's book comes out very strongly. And I think many of his points are echoed by those voters. And it's about the fruits of, li- of globalization. If you are a dock worker in Rotterdam and you have to compete against Bulgarian, Romanian and Polish workers who can be paid five euros, whereas you have to be paid 17 euros due to the minimum wage, that has very little to do with sort of ideas about Euro- Europeanism or globalization. It just means that basically you're, you're, you're bumped out of the workforce. It's unfair competition. Um, and it's fairness about incompetence. So our states across Europe have become really harsh. If you make a little mistake as a, as a small business, you get, you get fined very hard. And then people look at politicians who mess up the financial sector, and then they go work in the financial sector. So there's, there's, there's a sense of fairness. And then there's fear. And what was really interesting is that on the one hand, I found the, the sort of you know, run-of-the-mill racist fears of foreigners, uh, which I would call the irrational fears. But fear is also just a signal in the brain about danger. And the rational fears, I think on the one hand it's terrorism. And so people just to turn on the television set and they see a bearded man going on and on how he wants to destroy Europe. And then people feel that their leaders haven't taken that sufficiently seriously. And there are, not, of course, more people get killed in car crashes than in terrorism, but people are worried about the next level of terrorism. Um, chemical weapons, biological weapons... Um, there's also the fear among more highly educated middle-class Wilders supporters about the social conservatism of Im- immigrants. And so it's striking how many, and this same is true for France, how many gay activists, feminists and Jews have moved over to Wilders feeling that the biggest threat to openness is actually the, the immigrants. And they feel that, that immigrants, by and large, coming from Middle Eastern countries... I lived there for six years, um, and I confirm this, can confirm this from my own experience, is have no tradition or experience with equality or openness. And they feel that actually rather than being closed themselves, they feel that Holland is going to end up being a closed country if every year the country imports 100,000 socially conservative uh, future voters. And I think so far it's, it's been quite ambiguous, but the latest Erdogan uh, referendum was really striking. In Belgium, in France, in Germany, in Holland, a majority of Dutch uh, Turks voted for Erdogan. Dutch, uh, European, European Turks could have swung the referendum against Erdogan. They swung it in his favor. And so that's, that's hundreds of thousands of people who either didn't bother to vote to save their country from Erdogan's um, proposals or actually wanted their country to become less democratic. And so that was, that was the fear bit. And then underlying, I think, all this was representation, the sense that their interests are simply not taken seriously, and there are the key issues, Europeanization and immigration, so the composition of your society, as well as 
the political structure governing your society, that they don't have a say. So if you are against immigration on non-racist grounds, there was never a party for you. You had to vote either for the racists or yeah, become uh, a non-voter. And so I think underlying some of this is just the demand to have a say in the key questions of your society and to, to de-tabooize, if you like, uh, opposition to immigration on, or further immigration, I should say, to non-racist grounds. Um, so um, comparing it to Britain and um, America, I was really struck how different the, the, the case made by Wilders and also Le Pen is. And so I, I begin to wonder if populism really covers the phenomena we see. And if you look at the electoral map across Europe, what you see is the fragmentation of the center and the collapse of the center. That, apart from Germany, is going on everywhere. And so I would say that, that Wilders and Le Pen and others, they are symptoms. And they fill a void. And the void is created by the fact that the center, the post-World War II consensus, has just run out of ideas. And it has no answers. And uh, sure, Le Pen has no answers. We could see that yesterday in the debate. But if you ask mainstream politicians about, okay, so how exactly is the EU going to be democratic? Or how exactly are we going to make sure that 100,000 immigrants per year will, within a generation, embrace central notions of equality and openness? There is just as much of the absence of an answer. And I think people feel this. And so, in that sense, the problem is much deeper. And we, we like, I think we like to focus on, will they win the next election? If not, we can sort of you know, breathe. Uh, it's, it's a bit like the snooze button. So the... We have a problem, the alarm goes off, and then the alarm goes off in an election, and we hit the snooze button, and until the next election, we go like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and that's the deeper-lying um, problem. And so I came out, on the one hand, much more optimistic, because I felt that many Wilders voters had actually internalized the, the idea, ideas of equality and openness, but on the other hand, far more pessimistic, because I, because I, I, I got... I think I got more insight than ever just how empty the center is these days. Thank you. So three very challenging um, uh, insights there. I think I, I'd like to, to pick up some of the things that um, Joris brought to that and, and start with you, Bill, with some questions. But to just go back a little bit to, to, to your presentation, um, and having witnessed this phenomenon over various times in your role as um, economist editor-in-chief, you describe the threat really well, or describe the problem and the roots of populism really well. Um, it's probably relatively easy to, to say, you know, inequality and, and the fact that sharing the fruits of national prosperity across the globe is, is, um, has been reducing in, in recent times. But then you talk a little bit about um, liberal order, and, and pulling up this question about what is a legitimate elite. You know, the restoration of liberal order may be difficult to actually ever restore again in the same form that it once had, um, if populism is, a, is not a blip. I think that you said 2016 was a blip. We all went, oh, thank goodness, it's 2017. No, I don't think it's a blip. No, I know it's not. No, it's uh, but I think we all walked into 2017 thinking, thank God that's over and all those celebrities died and we can start again. And, and actually, that it was actually a new world order, potentially. So trying to get to, to, a, to a question around what is legitimate order 
in a new world where actually shared prosperity is far more complex as we have accelerating change, as we have you know, unfettered globalisation, as population does grow, as climate change becomes a reality. How do we get to you know, how exactly that question that you were asking, how exactly is the EU or the West at large going to, to restore democracy? I mean, first of all, democracy is working in some ways, too well, as far as some uh, uh, members of the so-called liberal elite is concerned. It's producing the wrong answers or the wrong outcomes, like Trump. So democracy is working. Um, I would say, secondly, though, that it's not working in the following sense, and this is my response to Ed's uh, riposte, which is that, um, uh, as he rightly says, there are, there are ailments that explain some discontent and the hollowing out of the centre that go back a very long time, Um, normally we would have expected democracy in its fumbling, sort of uh, approximate, not very perfect way to provide provide responses to that. Um, I happen to think that Barack Obama was the first populist um, uh, winner in an American election. The trouble is he arrived coincident with the 2008, with the Lehman shock. Um, If you look at the American cycle, just to focus on that, Inequality was almost the thing that gave Al Gore the White House in 2000, but then didn't quite, thanks to some chads um, and other things. 2000, and then obviously foreign policy and 9-11 and so forth intervened, but then 2008, Barack Obama was both a response to foreign policy failure, but also arguably a response to some of the deep-seated ailments that uh, Ed rightly identifies. Um, Why didn't he, in his eight years in office, succeed in achieving a consensus in Congress to provide solutions? I would say substantially because of of the 2008 crash, which was just such an overwhelming problem. Um, So I think that if we went in any decade in the last uh, 30, 40, 50 years, we would find moments where there were deep-seated, long-standing problems. I think in 1989, when... Paul Kennedy was writing The Rise and Fall of uh, the Great Powers and writing off America um, as being basically about to be overtaken by Japan and you know, generally suffering from imperial overstretch. Many of those deep-seated problems were what he was thinking about. There were responses, but they were inadequate. So coming around, how can they be made adequate? Well, I think um, in, our, um, in like the case of Emmanuel Macron, or let's put it in this country, in the case of Theresa May and the Conservative Party, uh, they need to get back to some of the previous attempts, to the previous solutions for investing in social mobility, in investing in, um, in uh, multicultural integration and dealing with some of the worries about immigration that uh, are there. And I think that you see that in some of Theresa May's um, Rhetoric. You don't see it at all in her policies. I mean, in other words, she hasn't been doing anything to do with these things, but she, I think she will, should do, or we will get, um, as it were, a failure in Britain after um, five, six, seven, eight years. Um, so I think it is in the normal process of democracy. I don't believe that the, the, the as it were, liberal international order is um, somehow defunct, but I do think it's under challenge because of the hollowing out of the centre and a sense that, my God, if, if all else fails, let's try a messiah, whoever that messiah might be. And we've seen that before in, in the, the cycles of politics. Try a messiah. 
We don't know what he or she is going to do, but let's give it a go. Well, um, in the US, we are trying a messiah, one could say. Um, and, but there, there is a question there about the cycle, you know, political cycles and, and how they're accelerating in their own right. Um, in your presentation, you had said... You'd, you can focus on the kind of loss of the American dream, if you like, and the, the, but, but that the American ma- male fear was being assuaged by the rhetoric that Donald Trump is able to, to put out there through social media and, and a variety of, of fast-moving um, media outlets. But, but, you know, I took from your, your um, suggestion that he could maintain popularity through kind of constant catchphrasing, is that true? Can, can you actually govern through catchphrasing? Or if there is continued material decline, if automation does continue to obsolesce jobs, and you were alluding to vast numbers of retail jobs being lost in the US just to 2020 due to, to automation, can, that be, can catchphrasing really um, work through a longer political cycle? Can, it, can you go, govern in that way? And if so, what are the consequences of that? Well, I guess we're, we're, we're going to find out. Um, the, the phrase that the media took Trump um, literally but not seriously, but Trump supporters took him seriously but not literally, implies, and I, this sort of is reinforced by my own interactions with Trump voters, implies that um, they, they're not, they don't have very high expectations that he is going to deliver on all the specific promises that he made, including the Mexican wall or trade war with China, um, but that they like him. They're very, very pessimistic about politics. They're very, and Obama, I agree, was in, in a way the forerunner. I mean, it, Hillary Clinton's the common factor here. Yeah. It's, Americans are so fed up and cynical about their politics' ab- ability to deliver anything to ordinary people that they go each time for the rank outsider. And there was no more rank outsider in, in 2008, particularly against Hillary Clinton, than Barack Obama. And, of course, Trump was the rank outsider to blow up the whole debate forever of 2016. Millions of people who voted for Trump voted for Barack Obama. So um, I have no doubt about it that, um, that Trump played on, fanned, and expanded the alt-right universe. There's a lot of racism there. There's a lot of, there are many baskets of deplorables, as Hillary Clinton would put it. Um, but, but there are also people who are not racist, and who are not misogynistic, who voted for Obama and voted for Trump, who are trying anything in a system that they just don't believe under any ordinary circumstances is ever going to deliver for them again. So in answer to your question, will governing by Twitter um, and, and through insult, essentially, and provocation, um, will, will, will that succeed? It could well do. Um, it, depends, it depends who the Democrats put up against Trump in, in 2020. Um, if, if they put up somebody who's perceived to be establishment, I think he'd have a good chance of getting re-elected. Um, if they put up Elizabeth Warren or a left-wing populist, then we will get kind of what people were expecting we might have been getting in France on Sunday, which Mélenchon versus Le Pen, America-style. Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump. But that, that will prove what we're talking about, which is the centre has collapsed. Um, the, the, middle, the middle is gone. Most voters no longer trust the middle establishment. Politics is normal. 
to do anything for them except patronise them. And, and I think they have really good grounds for thinking that. So Donald Trump, in his own right, is a bit of a disruptive innovation to government, to politics. He is. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I think he, he's a disruption to himself and he can't, he can't stick on one subject for more than a minute. So <laughs> we're not, we're not going to see any governance no. out of him. But the interesting thing to move to more of the vernacular of people who work, who, who live by social media, you know, when you describe Hillary Clinton's phrasing of, you know, baskets of deplorable, that's not very tweetable. You know, that, that, that oh, is... I, I tweeted you know, it pretty well, quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but, but one might imagine that you have a number of elites who are interested in what you have to say. So it's just trying to understand the kind of... the, the the vernacular that hits a very wide populist base as well, and how baskets of deplorable, as phrasing, is a, some, something that steps, steps the elite, if you like, apart from, from the general public. Um, it's not pub talk. It, yeah. it might be in some pubs, but... Strong, stronger know. Together was her sort of line. If you should have seen the list. The, the, the Hillary campaign had about 85 different slogans they were debating. It was... Stronger with strong families. And uh, I mean, it, the, if you look down, it, it looks like second-rate um, advertisers trying to sell soap. There was nothing, no content, no, just a very empty catch-all slogan. And David Cameron stumbled on the same one, coincidentally. Stronger together. Yes, because they're general word generators in, in, that, in that instance. Um, so thinking away from the kind of the American malaise and the... the um, but, but you categorise some kind of real, or you described real fear, the fear and loss of, of the American dream and specifically the, the male fear, I think you, you described it as. But in your um, explorations into fear and fairness, I think we talked earlier about um, that this, is, this doesn't look the same everywhere. So fear and fairness may be something that categorises the movement, but... But these things that are happening across Europe, across the West at large, are very different in, in their tone and in their detail. Can you, can you give us an example or give us a bit more into why, why these things aren't necessarily one coherent populist movement? Well, I think one really, two really important things is one is political system. So France, Britain and America have a kind of first-past-the-post district system. And so you can have a candidate who initially only commands 20% of the vote, like Le Pen, who could now theoretically, because of, it gets a lot of second-order uh, uh, preference votes, uh, and make it into a presidency. And if you look at um, the, the, the countries with proportional representation, they have had the, a populist movement for a long time. It has been allowed to play out. And so you can see that, that even though the British press keeps on saying that support for Wilders is growing, it's actually it's, it's a yo-yo. It's going up and down. And apparently, there's been a really interesting German long-running investigation, a book that came out, uh, Deutsche Zustände, which is sort of German circumstances, and they found that over the 50s, 60s, and 70s, 80s, about 20%, 15 to 20%, is susceptible to racist argument. And what the Germans did, and what I think um, the West generally managed to do, is just not give them a party, and not give them websites, not give them a newspaper. And so most of them just didn't vote. And so now, thanks to the internet, they have a voice. Um, and so I think what has happened is that over time, um, and I'm, I'm not sure about America, but in, in Europe what we've done is because the racists and the neo-Nazis were against immigration and against Europeanization, we decided that if you were against immigration and Europeanization, you must be a Nazi. And so there can be no honest disagreement with somebody who opposes immigration. There can be no honest disagreement with somebody who, who opposes uh, Europeanization. 
And I think that has bred immense resentment when immigration and Europeanization began to produce all these crises. So you had an elite that kept saying, no, no, it's fine, Schengen is fine, immigration is fine, multiculturalism is fine, uh, uh, globalization is fine. And then suddenly we had 2008, we had you know, the, uh, all the, the increasing tensions between uh, demographics in, uh, across Europe. And so that, I think, is quite different from America, where, uh, the, where, we, where Washington, at least, is still politically the center. You vote for a candidate who is then in charge of the nation. Whereas in, the, in Europe, you vote for a national leader who will then go to Brussels and negotiate. So the democratic mandate has also been hollowed out substantially, except for the rule of law. The rule of law, policing, that sort of thing is still firmly in the hands of nation states. And so if you campaign on the right-wing agenda of the rule of law, you can actually deliver on some of those promises. And so it, again, I think the here there, so it's, so it's, it's Europeanization and uh, different political systems. And I've, it's interesting how I, used, I studied political science. There was always a sense that, that proportional representation was more risky in terms of bringing the neo-Nazis back to power because look at these uh, awful parties like the PEN and across Europe. And now it seems like that actually proportional representation is a better shock absorber because on the, on the first past the post you have this thing simmering under the radar and then it can suddenly burst out. And so this would view Trump and Brexit more as a perfect storm and just really bad luck for you people. <laughs> so before I go to questions, try and find some kind of positive note to this, because I didn't want to go into the, the um, you know, too much hand-wringing. Um, but as, while we are hand-wringing in this sort of death of traditional liberal democracies, um, you know, we, we don't, we're, we're not looking necessarily for, you know, old, old remedies for new maladies. You know, we do have new, new problems ahead of us. So could this... Be the generational shift you know could this be a signal of the generational shift of a, of a new kind of um, politics a new kind of a new generation of democracy that looks slightly different from the kind of um, just the the voting or you know doesn't the rise of populism signal something about civic participation about you know different ways that we can conduct government and if so what does the birth of the next generation of democracy look like you know how will we recognize it I put it to all of you see if you want to volunteer what's the next wave that comes out of it what's the positive vision for the future <laughs> i think bill bill, bill, bill has a huge point first of all i don't think we should be pessimistic i mean i think to, to follow your boxing analogy i think this is we are a rocky movie basically we've got we've got blood all over our faces we're you know we're up against the ropes but we're going to fight out of it um but I, I think that obviously politics keeps changing, and it is it, it, what, what is characterizing that our time is a fragmentation of loyalties, of political loyalties, a, basically a, a, an ability to start new movements from nowhere. I mean, both France and Italy now have political parties or movements or whatever you want to call them that are, in one case, less than one year old. He's about to win the presidency, maybe. Um, and in Italy's case, uh, it's about five years old. The five-star movement is leading the opinion polls. Trump, well, he captured a party, but, I mean, he's really Trump um, in building it. I think we've got a much more fluid uh, political scene. So I think that the, if there's a future vision that I can say, it's going to be uh, less loyal, more fluid, but it isn't going to be about uh, Internet voting. In other words, I don't think we should worry so much about the technology side of it. I agree with that. Um, the um, millennials in America are actually the least angry um, generation. It's middle and late 
late age males who, who are the angriest. Fox News average viewer is age 68. Um, if you look at the millennials, they've grown up with far fewer expectations that their incomes will be double their parents. So they're more at the acceptance. There's a sort of the five stages. They're not at the anger stage because their, their expectations began lower. So I think we are in for a prolonged period of lower growth. I think there are very sound structural reasons for this. Um, I think we're in for a prolonged period of disruption, mostly negative for most people, to, that, to how work is, is conducted to the workplace. We haven't even begun to see the impact of autonomous driving. You know, there are more males employed part or full-time in America in driving in some form or other than there are in manufacturing. Um, so if you can imagine the impact of that. Um, so it's a question of acceptance rather than transformation. It's very, very hard to roll back the clock of technology. We don't want to, even if we could, roll back the clock of globalization. If there is a positive cost to this, is to look at this from a global perspective. As we are, 12% of the world's population lives in the West. We've had 80% of the world's economy for the last two centuries. The rest are now catching up. Um, poverty on a global um, level is falling every year. Life expectancy in countries like India, etc., rising under child mortality rates, rising. So from a global perspective, we can be very positive. Humanity is, is, is rising. Um, um, but this means that the West is going to be squeezed for quite a long time, and we've got to be sane about how we respond to this. And I think millennials are actually more realistic about what they expect from life than other generations. Can I disagree slightly? Yes. I mean, I agree with Ed, absolutely, because we want to disagree a bit. Yeah. Um, only, well, first of all, never forecast, especially about the future. Um, I think uh, sure. you've, you're making uh, economic forecasts, you're making technological forecasts that... I don't know whether you're right or wrong, um, when uh, all of those uh, wagon drivers in Britain and other countries were, uh, lost their jobs thanks to the railways, replacing uh, an almost driverless train, uh, I mean, wagons with almost driverless trains, um, this was going to be devastating forever to uh, Victorian economic growth. Uh, so I don't think we know what the jobs of the future are going to be. I would be more positive about the prospects that, uh, thanks to technology, we can achieve higher productivity, but we need um, to, uh, in other words, an aging person plus a robot. That's a, that's a winning combination. Um, uh, I want one. Um, uh, but uh, clearly we need to deal with some of the fundamental issues about people's uh, expectations and their, their, their ability to pay for things, their, the inequality that's in our, our societies that mean that Household demand is, is anemic um, thanks to like, the, the, the increased inequality of, uh, of incomes, and we have to so raise minimum wages. That's one of, my, one of my beliefs. I never thought I would say that. There you go. Former <laughs> chief, chief economist, editor of The Economist. I thought one of the most interesting bits I found to build in your book was the idea of elite uh, restraint, is that your point that in, in an open system you can win too well. And I think this has been a really recurring problem is that if I've been interviewing bankers as a, another anthropological product, uh, project, and I would always ask, don't you feel any responsibility yeah. for society at large? 
and they did not. They had in totally internalized this invisible hand. It's invisible not because it doesn't exist, but I don't need to look for it. Um, and this sense of, no, if I just pursue relentlessly within the law my own self-interest, all will be well, it will be stable, it will be maximum efficient, it will be fair. I deserve every billion I've got. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And I, I think this is, uh, and I, I think it does tie in, in with solidarity. I mean, do you feel responsibility? You probably feel responsibility for not the global population, but your own country. But then you have to define your own country, and you get into the world of, you know, cultural identity and that sort of thing. And that sits very uncomfortably with open borders. But I think this 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 return of the idea that elites have a responsibility beyond their own CV, you know, the, the sort of the antithesis of Tony Blair, uh, who you know who became a you know, a fixer for J.P. Morgan for two and a half million a year. I mean, that has been devastating for the, I think, the, the reputation of the left. I think that was, that, that, that really made me hopeful. I think if the former um, editor-in-chief of The Economist, you know, the, the pen of the neoclassical economics, is, that is your magazine, would say we need elite restraint, then I think, yes, you, you made my day. <laughs> That's a good thing. Okay, so... I had a gentleman there. Okay, so I'd like to hear more about the actual policies that might uh, make this, the centre stronger again. I mean, Bill, you said that we, we need leaders who go beyond lots of rhetoric about uh, social mobility and multiculturalism to deliver actual policies. And in the later discussion, you mentioned raising the minimum wage. I mean, is that enough, or what are the policies that will make the difference? And I particularly refer to the issues of multiculturalism that uh, Joris brought up with uh, Turks throughout Europe being uh, more closed and uh, less democratic than uh, maybe many of the people are here. So how are we actually going to reach these people? You said that nobody had an answer. I'm hoping that you and the panel will have at least some answers to this. Uh, clearly, raising the minimum wage is not enough, but I think that uh, a, a new emphasis, a, a, a emphasis in public spending and on in uh, use of taxation, so it has to be through fiscal policy, those are almost the only weapons that a government has, on social mobility and uh, the, uh, the, the resources that the, the lower portions of, of the income scale have, has to be a large part of the policy. So minimum wage, yes, but Clearly, education, which some people call the Swiss army knife of, uh, of, uh, of policy because it basically can be used for everything, but actually we do, do need to increase investment in that, some infrastructure spending that, uh, that uh, Trump talks about. I think that uh, things that throw basically resources towards there and to some degree away from pensions, and by the way, a lot of Western countries' problem is that people have retired too, been allowed to retire too early at 55 or 60 years old and are basically drawing a state pension for uh, 30, 40 years, and that has taken the money away from some of the social mobility policies that we need to be spending money on. Can I briefly mention one thing? A Marshall Plan for the middle classes, um, a massive yeah. investment in middle-class skills and retraining. Now, the Danish have a brilliant system where every year, subsidised by the government, but employers work with them, everybody has two weeks um, set aside to train in different skills. And as a result, Denmark has far higher job turnover because people are confident to change jobs, hop from job to job. They're multi-skilled. Um, it's not a utopian thing. America spends $700 billion a year subsidizing mortgages, and there's no cap on it, meaning the richer you are, the bigger your house, the larger the McMansion, the bigger the subsidy you get from the taxpayer. All you need is $100 billion a year 
to really re reboot America's training system. So it's not that we can't think of things to do about this. That's not the problem. The problem is politics is making it impossible to do them. Um, that's the real problem. It's the politics, not the policies. Rapid fire, next question. Fellow of the RSA, um, I'd like to try and take a different angle to economics. And what I feel is at the heart of a lot of this is, um, I heard it said before, cultural identity or nation, nation states, if you like. We've moved a long way from nation states. There is an irony here that America, which was the biggest melting pot in history, seems to be rejecting anything that's no, not pure white, uh, call it white trash if you want, but white American, whatever that identity is. If you go to Turkey, um, there's this debate going on about is it a secular or is it a religious state? So isn't there something at the core of all of this that is there is a group of people simply saying you're all dragging us to a new level of tolerance and identity but we don't recognise anymore what our identity is. It's this inability for some people, a large minority if you like, to understand where they are being taken to and really how far their tolerance should go for the speed of changes that are being put on them. I don't know if it's an economic argument. I think it's an identity and who they're being led by argument. Thank you. Yaris, do you want to answer that? Yes, I was, I was reading Bill's book. I was thinking maybe, maybe we should approach the West um, really as a religion in the sense of a, a set of coherent ideas um, underpinned by axiomas that... Yeah, with, without which you can't proceed, which is usually mostly about equality between men and women, uh, between different forms of sexual orientation. Um, and, and the other one is uh, authoritarian collectivism. And having lived in Egypt, I, I could see that people are quite happy in a authoritarian collectivist society because the, the leader is the father, uh, and it's, the father is similar to the leader, and individualism hurt. I mean, you don't have to have read much existentialist literature to see that, that being responsible for your own choices is actually often a major cause of depression because you make the wrong choices or you're, you have buyer's remorse. And so what I, what I find striking about the West these days is that we, we don't make the case to newcomers about, um, about the West, Western religion. So there was a really interesting phrase by a New York Times journalist who said the problem isn't that we don't write about populist voters, the problem is we don't write for them. And I think there's something similar about immigrants. We do write about immigrants all the time, but we never write for them. And there was, in the 20s, I, I went to swim at the Lido this morning in Hampstead, and in the 20s, there was this sense of that you're going to build big pools for the betterment of society. And that whole sense of betterment, born out of elite restraint and a sense of responsibility for your community, has all gone. And I think part of that responsibility now should be to really convert people over to the religion of individualism. Converting to the Religion of individualism, the lady in the middle. I found all your talks really, really good, really interesting, first of all. Thank you very much. Um, silly question, really. What will happen if you're wrong about um, Macron, that uh, <laughs> all the other rather populist people in Europe suddenly come to the fore in the Netherlands and Germany as well? Nobody's mentioned Germany. And Theresa May here, she might sweep up all the UKIP votes. She might become a sort of proto-quasi-populist. So what will happen to the EU and to the West then? I was slightly worried for you, Bill, when you said, well, polls say Macron's going to win. I thought, oh, dear. Well, yes, <laughs> I know, I know. Yes, 
never, never make forecasts when you can be proved wrong within days. Yes. yes, that's right. That is a dangerous thing. Well, I would say, well, first of all, actually, this is an opportunity to say that I think, um, which I'd forgotten to say earlier, that the idea that Brexit is clearly part of all of this phenomena, I think, should be rejected. Um, the curiosity about Brexit, which I disagree with, I was a strong Remain voter, I mean, a, a vehement Remain voter, and indeed, I'm partly moving to Ireland as a result of it, um, as a um, sense of, uh, sense of d- dissent. But nevertheless, um, I think that actually our motives, the motives that you can analyse in the Brexit vote were not really predominantly populist, even if there was an element of them that clearly was, and especially the immigration issue was a, a very important part of it, but also a certain self-confidence that was there, uh, a sort of almost a kind of um, Britain, Britain is better than, than the European Union view, I think, pushed some people in that direction. So that's the first thing to say. Okay, if Le Pen wins, to answer your question, um, I think that we would see um, uh, uh, an imme- if she if she can form a majority in Parliament as well, I think we would see an immediate challenge to uh, some of the international rules of liberalism, um, which, by which I mean um, uh, free trade, uh, I mean membership of NATO and uh, the security alliance of Europe. The, um, clearly the European Union, I think that uh, this probably it would become defunct rather than uh, actually destroyed it would be like the League of Nations in the 1930s where people still went in and out of the buildings and uh, were paid salaries, but actually they no longer did anything. Um, so I think that we would see that. Now, would we move to, as it were, fascism, if you like, I mean, in the, in the sort of extreme end of it? I would say probably not. I don't think one should be uh, a, a, so much of a scaremonger about it, but you could imagine a spiraling process in which that did happen. Uh, I don't think one should say that as a central part of, you know, democracy's over. Um, but you could imagine it could... I, if I was Le Pen and I got really angry about the way the media was writing about me, might I try and do a Viktor Orban and kind of start controlling the media and Putin and so forth. So I think we could see a, uh, a, a, a cycle in which a lot of, some of the basic defences of, of democratic rights, free, free speech and, and others, get eroded. But the First prediction would be the international stuff. I was looking for some hope. And uh, if by some miracle Europe was able to put its economic house in order, would you have, um, would you see the death of populism? Populism, well, it's a, it's a technique rather than, a, uh, rather than an ideology. So, I mean, the technique would still, in a, in a um, social media and media-dominated world, still be valid and people would use it. But secondly, I think the point is, if, it depends what you mean by put its house in order. If, if, if uh, European countries, together and separately, were able to reduce the anger and the grievances of uh, their citizens, then I think the populist voting would subside. It wouldn't disappear, but it would subside. But so that's the question. Respond to the grievances, you reduce the need to vote. Joris, do you want to, to comment on that? I mean, I think you... you rather said, I'm all right, you're there, going, you know, over to you, Brexit. But so how, how actually might we, um, is where you were seeking hope, how might we find hope if the economic house was put in order in Europe? Yeah. What would that look like? Because, because listening to uh, you both, I was, I was struck by how almost Marxist the analysis is. 
You know, we just have to yeah, fix the the, the, the economic, <laughs> the, and and all cultural, all the other stuff will just grow out of it. And I, I do think that there's a there's a there's a deeper issue here about belonging and about people wanting to be part of something. And for us, it's easier. We're we're the post-national global elite, so that's our sense of belonging. Uh, people identify with high-status categories they belong to. And so if you have very few high-status categories to belong to, you want, for example, the national and not to be mocked. When I ask my Wilders voters why you vote for him, because he has no plans and he, uh, he doesn't even have a party, they said, at least he doesn't look down on us. And that has very little to do with economics. So, so changing the system doesn't necessarily change the way people feel. So we had the gentleman there. It seems to me that underneath this... Um topic, there are two critical questions. How do governments add value to society and how does the financial sector add value to society? If these are important questions, why don't they get discussed? You can answer how do the banks add value to society and how do governments add value to society and then you can say why don't they get discussed because that was cleverly three questions in one. So... <laughs> I'll try and answer the government question, but I'll answer it from the American perspective, um, uh, since I'm the designated American hitter here. Um, there, there's been, um, I think, a, a sort of collective amnesia in the United States about the degree to which government played a hugely important role um, in terms of creating the technologies that have enriched Silicon Valley and other parts of America. The internet, um, the mouse, um, GPS systems... Uh, the, the transistor, um, the, the microchip, all these come in one form or another out of mostly Pentagon research budgets in the 40s, 50s and 60s and were then commercialised um, by the private sector, um, as was the great middle-class boom of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. The GI Bill, which underwrote free education for all returning veterans from the Second World War, was a huge springboard for post-war American growth. And I think there's been amnesia about the constructive role that government has played in America's great capitalist success and that there's been a kind of fairy tale um, post-Reagan um, uh, reaccounting of history that has basically airbrushed government out of it. And that's really the, 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 the challenge for the Democrats today is to try and talk a little bit more of the role of government in the economic sphere and a little bit less about transgender bathroom rights. OK. Um, do you want to comment on the financial elite? Try to be as quick as I can. I think, that's, I think and Bill's book is, is fantastic about this. It's this massive market failure in the heart of capitalism, which is the financial sector. Uh, you know, if, if, if restaurants would serve the sort of toxic crap that banks were so serving in 2008, then according to free market theory, you would now have all these restaurants would have gone bust, um, and you would have new restaurants, and especially if those restaurants were, serve, were paying their waiters the kind of money that banks were paying. You would, and so there, there's, there's mess. I thought I was going to find capitalism in the heart of capitalism. I found socialism. Banks, but banks are not parasites. I mean, take finance out of your life, and you live the life of a caveman. So it's, it, it, we just have too much of a good thing, and it's become globalized. And it's, it's, for example, to come back to elite restraint, ING Bank is now paying bonuses that are seen as very unfair in the Netherlands. But ING Bank is owned for 95% by foreign shareholders. So the kind of appeal that in the 80s you could still make to ING Bank, or as it was called back then, is to, you know, we're, we're in this crisis, lower your bonuses. They're, they just happen to be in the Netherlands. But that's just a, a legal jurisdiction. 
And so this, this, this again comes back to community. But I, but I think yeah, banks do add value, but they, they, right now they subtract even more value. So. Okay, so we'll go to the gentleman there. So if we can... Last question. Really informative talk. Um, I, uh, it's difficult because there was a number of questions I had, but I'll, I'll stick with one. Um, let's say uh, in the West people do get their house in order and things sort of do move back. There's a sort of lowering of inequality maybe in the UK and the US. Um, where would you see the next shocks coming from? Um, uh, and I know maybe you don't want to answer because you don't like to predict things, but mm. I, I asked partly because uh, I'm, I'm Dutch and so I read Leijendijk's uh, book um, where he was very pessimistic. It can't be true of the financial sector. And he was very pessimistic about the reforms that have been going on. So it would be interesting to hear from all three of you if you see... Um, even despite the current condition or even an improving condition, where, where more shocks might come from and how we could be resilient to them. And, and focusing on the resilience so that we run up that staircase in our Rocky franchise with a sort of rousing call for it's going to be OK. So, Bill. Very hard to say where the next shocks are going to come from. Um, I, I guess I do think that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those who thinks that there is some sort of inevitable friction or shock in the uh, China West uh, relationship that uh, that uh, they're therefore a sort of geopolitical shocks are, are perhaps the, the safest area for me or for me to predict about um, and for that we need international alliances and we need uh, multilateral institutions and international law if we are to respond to um, to uh, to such a, a tension the so-called Thucydides trap. Um, I mean, I think apart from Twitter feed and whatever Trump says next, um, because <laughs> there will be that shock sort of hourly, um, I think that the great sort of shock, and it will be a rolling shock of our time, is climate change. And I do think that one of the deep frustrations of all the debates we're having about our politics is that it means we're not, we don't even have the bandwidth to focus on the transcendent, overwhelming common threat to humanity. Um, that climate change poses. And I think that will be a series of rolling shocks, which I hope we don't get acclimatised to. <laughs> so rolling with the punches, what, what shocks? Well, to focus on the financial sector, I thought uh, Nassim Likas Taleb's books was very good about anti-fragility. So the, the problem isn't shocks, the problem isn't bank, banks going bust. The problem is that we've, we build a financial si- system that can't really absorb shocks anymore. And there's an analogy here with Europe, is that Democracy works best if the electorate pays for its mistakes. But these days, in, in, a, in an EU and Eurozone context, that very rarely happens. And so, just like in 2008, we couldn't afford the shock of just letting the whole financial sector go bust and build it up from the beginning, because that would probably have swept democracy with it. Again, also politically, we can't. And I think that this is also creates this, this, this hand-wringing, this sense of we can't afford another shock. And I think you need a sense of self-confidence, but it has to come from confidence in the ability to, to absorb them. Mm-hmm. Becoming shock absorbers. So um, thank you to, to my Rocky 1, Rocky 2 and Rocky 3 for our, for our relatively gentle fight and debate around um, the fate of the West. I think that we covered a huge ground in such short periods of time. Um, and I would probably say that if we were a, a movie franchise, we're more like The Fast and the Furious now. Um, <laughs> Um, but we've run out of time now, so it, all it does remains for me to do is to say thank you to our eminent panel, Bill, Edward and Joris. Thank you. Thank you for listening. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, thersa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.